How free is Canada as a country? It's a question that my guest on the podcast today tackled in a book back in 2020. And he concluded that our freedom was actually pretty precarious for lots of reasons, including how deferential to authority we are as a people. In Canada, we are everybody, every citizen, everybody is much too reticent to question what officials say. We're much too deferential. We accept what uh, figures of authority say. We accept what senior government officials say, including public health regulators, for example. We accept what judges say. We don't challenge, we don't question, we don't argue. And that, I think, is one of the ways in which our freedom is corroded. Philip Slayton is a Canadian lawyer and a former dean of law at Western University. He's also a former president of Penn Canada and a best-selling author. His latest book had a huge impact on me. It's called Nothing Left to Lose, an impolite report on the state of freedom in Canada. Philip joins me today to talk about that book and for a lively state of the nation conversation, looking at how the pandemic, growing economic inequality, and the use of the Emergencies Act to quash trucker protests has impacted freedom in this country. I'm thrilled to have Philip Slayton as my guest. That's today on Lean Out. Philip, welcome to Lean Out. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. And so much to talk about today. I have okay. just reread the book again and there's just so many interesting threads to pull today. To start, I want to go through how you've defined the necessary list of conditions for freedom. It's a long list, so I'll just touch on a few. An alert and skeptical citizenry willing to challenge authority, an appropriate apportionment of power between executive and legislative branches of government, a vigorous, independent, diverse, and disciplined press, a strong and independent education system, an effective justice system available to all, a rejection of political correctness. This book was written before the pandemic. You concluded freedom was precarious at that time. What is your assessment now, several years later? Well, I mean, let me just begin by saying, as the list you read out or the points you read out suggest, my view of freedom is there's a very complex idea with many moving parts. It's not susceptible to easy treatment, the sh shouting of slogans or any of that sort of thing. It's complicated and needs to be seen as such. Okay, so what's happened since the pandemic? Well, I have kind of mixed feelings about what's happened since the pandemic. I mean, initially, I was quite disturbed by the what I thought was the heavy-handed approach of government to dealing with this. I wrote a piece in the Global Mail, an op-ed piece in the Global Mail, I think maybe in June's of 2020, I guess, saying, you know, I don't like walking through the park and not being able to sit on a park bench. And I don't like walking around and seeing a sign that says you may be asked for your identity credentials at any time. This rubbed me up the wrong way. But on the other hand, there's no question that it was a very serious public health crisis, uh, very unusual. I'd hate to use that word unprecedented. It's used too often, but a very unusual and serious public health crisis that needed unusual and perhaps what in another context would be regarded as draconian action and restrictions. So that's not a very satisfactory answer, I know. It's kind of a mixed answer. I don't have a clear conclusion. I didn't see anything 
in the pandemic that maybe feel our freedoms were safe, that they were inviolate, that freedom was expanding. I did see things which suggested to me the opposite, but I think the opposite was to some degree justified by the circumstances. We can talk more about that further. And because I think probably there's some points of disagreement there between you and I. But okay, before, good. Yeah, before we go any further, one thing I want to get out of the way, you are a former president of Penn Canada, and we have American sure. listeners on this podcast. Canada has freedom of expression. Can yes. you just give us a brief explainer of what that means legally? Freedom of expression. Well, again, it's a complicated concept. I'm sorry to keep saying that, but it's true. I mean, to me, I mean, I'm something of a freedom of speech absolutist, freedom of expression absolutist. I mean, I think there should be very few restrictions on freedom of expression and freedom of speech being one one of, only one, but an important aspect of freedom of expression. Very few restrictions. And on the whole, in our country, in this country, from a legal point of view, from a government authority point of view, there are not many restrictions, I'm glad to say. Although I detect a worrying trend away from that laissez-faire attitude on the part of government and regulatory bodies and the law in general. We seem to be moving in the wrong direction. We can perhaps talk about that later on. But generally speaking, freedom of expression means freedom to do, to write, to paint, to act, to say, pretty much with very few restrictions, whatever you want. Now, having said that, Tara, let me just again come back to the idea of freedom being a complicated idea. Let's take writing, for example. We can proclaim that people are free to write whatever they want pretty much in the form of books, in the form of op-eds, and whatever they want to do. But if you look at the reality behind that, you see something of a different picture. You see, for example, it's all very well to say you're free to write whatever book you want, but you can make no money virtually doing that. The government does not help you in any kind of financial way, and maybe it shouldn't, I don't know. So in the reality is, although you're free to write, you can't afford to do it. And so that's just one illustration of the complexity of the idea of freedom. It's easy to say, oh, you're free to say or write whatever you want, except you're not really in the current real circumstances of life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also, I mean, since we're on the topic of writing right now, you write extensively in the book about Camlet about our literary culture and how incredibly bitterly divided it is over things like the Stephen Galloway case and the cultural appropriation debates. Talk to me a little bit about what you've seen evolve in our writing culture. Well, I mean, the first thing to say about the writing culture, I suppose, is that it's very small. There are not many people who write and there are not many people who read. I mean, there are some dramatic exceptions to this, of course, you know, the Margaret Atwoods and Michael and Duchess and so on of this world, but they are very few and far between, and their influence is very unusual. Generally speaking, the writing culture in this country is moribund. It's again, it's an example of what I, I just said. I mean, people are free to write whatever they want, pretty much as they should be, but there are very few people doing it in any kind of effective way that reaches a mass audience. So the writing culture, there's a problem with it. Now, within the writing culture that we have in this country, which is small, as I write in the book, as you mentioned, there's been tremendous divisions, tremendous controversy, and a lot of bitterness and a serious unpleasantness, which is unfortunate. And on a related note, the education system, particularly post-secondary, you write about this extensively in the book too. 
We recently saw a professor at UBC Law, Stefan Serafin, write about his experiences trying to teach property law and particularly Aboriginal law in the context of this, I mean, I don't know what else to call it, woke kind of ideology. It has resulted in a formal human rights complaint. This is someone, it's worth pointing out, who spent years working in First Nations communities before going to law school, has a great appreciation and respect for Indigenous traditions. You write in your College Land chapter about this ideological movement on campuses and its potential to shut down free speech and open debate. Walk me through the broad strokes of your argument there. Well, I mean, first of all, I find the whole growth of ideology, the prevalence of ideology on university campuses is not just Canada, of course, it's many countries. And it's throughout the universities, throughout all, virtually all faculties, including law faculties, as you mentioned. I find that to be extraordinarily dangerous, extraordinarily retrogressive, and personally an anathema to what I believe in. I mean, I was, I'm sort of old school on this, not just on this, by the way, just about everything. I think that the university, and I write about this in the book, as you know, I think the university is a place, first of all, for free expression, where anybody should be able, within very few limits, to argue whatever kind of argument they want to make. And it's a place where arguments need to be tested objectively according to their soundness, the soundness of the argument, the soundness of the facts they refer to, and so on. And all of that is distorted by the intrusion of ideology. And it's an intrusion of ideology which is often thoughtless, knee-jerk, writing whatever happens to be the current political currents. And it's depriving people at universities, students at universities, or learners, as I believe they're supposed to be called now, it's depriving them of the true basis of an education, which, as I say in the book, the most essential thing that an education does is teach you how to distinguish, and this is not original to me, teach you how to distinguish a good argument from a bad argument. I mean, there are so many, Tara, there are so many bad arguments floating around. People who are trying to get you to buy into things, to subscribe to things, to do things, when there's really no sound basis for doing it. There's so many bad arguments around that you need to be able to identify those bad arguments. You need to be able to test them. You need to be able to spot them so that you can reject them. And that, to me, is whatever else universities do, that, to me, is the essence of their mission. And, of course, the intrusion of ideology, whatever it happens to be, distorts or indeed even destroys the ability to perform that mission. Think is to be done about that in universities right now. Oh my God. Well, it's prevalent. It seems to have seeped into every pore of the university in this country, in the United Kingdom, the United States, France, and elsewhere. What's to be done? I really don't know. I, I sort of despair when I contemplate this. I don't know. I mean, I had a discussion about this very recently with a very distinguished Canadian writer, and I was expressing my despair to her, my feeling that, you know, the world is spiraling out of control. And she gave me a sort of a kind look. Uh, she smiled and she said, don't worry, Philip, the pendulum will eventually swing in the other direction. Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I hope she's right. But as to what's to be done, well, I think all you can do, certainly at the individual level, is fight it in any way you can, is criticize it in any way you can, and speak out or write out about it in any way you can. Of course, you will then suffer quite possibly bad consequences for doing that because you will be contrary to the prevalent accepted ideology. What amazes me, though, Tara, is in some respects is how quickly and easily 
senior university administrators and professors bought into this. I mean, these are people who are well-educated, who are thoughtful, in many cases have had quite a long career in the academy, have seen other times, other ways of doing things, and yet they seem to have embraced all of this wholeheartedly. I don't understand why. Are they afraid? Are they, I don't know. I just don't understand. It is confusing. I do think that the way that it's framed is quite powerful because it's framed to be against this ideology is to be against equality. And nobody wants to be against that. No, but again, I would come back with you to first principles. I mean, nobody is in favor of inequality. Nobody that I know anyway. And indeed, I write about this in my book, for example. I write about the very adverse effects of income and wealth inequality. Which mm-hmm. People don't talk about that so much, but I think it's absolutely central. No one's in favor of inequality. Everybody's in favor of equality. But you have to say to yourself, what is equality? What does that mean? What are the components of it? What are the most important parts of that? And how do we specifically address those things? You have to do that rather than spouting slogans. Mm. And also, I mean, the income inequality piece, I was so glad you wrote about that. We will return to that. But I want to talk for a moment about COVID. So, you know, you talk about the press quite extensively in the book. And during COVID, I saw very little questioning, for example, of public health authorities from members of the press. My view is public health officials are human beings like anyone else. Some will be mistaken about something. Some will be in conflict of interest. Some will be overwhelmed and exhausted. Some might be corrupt. We actually saw a public apology from a Danish newspaper for not being more skeptical. I want to read something from the late David Carr of the New York Times, which you quoted in the book, talking about the attitude of the British press. The one question of all young reporters on a Fleet Street. Yeah. The one question of all young reporters on Fleet Street are taught to keep foremost in their minds when interviewing public figures can best be paraphrased by, why is this jerk lying to me? How do you think our national press handled the pandemic? Well, the first question, I suppose, is what is the national press? Because the national press is a different animal than it was 20 years ago, let's say, you know, before social media basically took over. How did they handle it? I would say not well. I'm not sure this is because the national press, to the extent there is a national press, I'm not sure it's because the national press is inept, corrupt, or whatever. I think it's more that they're in disarray. And they don't have the resources that they need to thoroughly and doggedly pursue and expose the truth. Very few newspapers do have that. Almost none, in fact. The New York Times, for example, would be an exception, and there's perhaps others, but very few do. So I don't think they handled it well because of the what they are or what they no longer are, in fact. I also think, and this is a theme of my book, as you know, I also think, again, echoing David Carr, really, but in Canada, we are everybody, every citizen, everybody is much too reticent to question what officials say. We're much too deferential, as you know, I write about this. We accept what uh, figures of authority say. We accept what senior government officials say, including public health regulators, for example. We accept what judges say. We don't challenge. We don't question. We don't argue. And that, I think, is one of the ways in which our freedom is corroded, as I discuss in the book, is the alert and skeptical citizenry point. Every citizen needs to be asking themselves, well, why are they saying this to me? I mean, why are they promoting this particular idea? Are they right to do so? Then you get into the good argument, bad argument thing. Are they giving me good arguments that I should accept or not? But we're not 
inclined to do that the way people in some other countries are. Now, it's, again, a complicated issue because then people would say, well, you know, if you challenge authority too much, if you reject authority too much, eventually you get some kind of collapse of your institutions because nobody will, will obey. And that is to some extent true, but it's like everything else. You know, it's where you find the middle ground somewhere that's acceptable and it works. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about vaccine mandates for a moment. I consider those an infringement on freedom. I think the rational argument behind them has fallen apart. In fact, we saw in the Globe and Mail this week, Zaid Chagla from McMaster University, an infectious diseases specialist, saying exactly that, that the arguments, the logical reasoning for them has fallen apart. We know that they don't stop transmission. We know that they don't stop infection. And his point, which I hadn't heard before, and you know, especially with travel, that under 12 have always been involved in travel. So there's never been a purely vaccinated space anyways. What's your thinking on the vaccine mandates? When you say vaccine mandates, you mean the requirement that you be, quote unquote, fully vaccinated before you can do certain things, travel internationally, go into restaurants, that sort of thing. Well, you know, this is kind of unsatisfactory to you, I'm sure, but I don't really know. I mean, I do accept what people say, which is that what scientists say, what medical scientists say, which is that vaccine has prevented a far greater pandemic and tragedy than than has in fact happened. I accept that. I accept, I think, because scientists, people know far better than I, tell me this, that the vaccine is a wonderful and effective thing, although not completely effective. And I also agree with what you say, what, what other people say, which is that COVID is a very complicated disease. It's hard to beat and keeps popping up in different guises and despite the vaccine. Okay, but try and address your point directly. I think you and I have to differ on this. I think on the whole, as a vaccine mandates, as a public health measure, are probably defensible, even though I accept, and I'm sure you believe this, I accept that they represent a considerable intrusion on our personal freedom because we're being told to do something. And if we don't do it, we don't have to do it, but if we don't do it, then we are deprived of all kinds of opportunities and facilities that we want. Mm -hmm. I think, too, that if it was a different vaccine and a different virus, I may feel differently about it. But I think that the sort of logical thinking through of it is difficult at this point because of the transmission issue mainly, but also because of the small threat of myocarditis in certain populations that perhaps some people should be able to make a meaningful choice of which risk they would prefer to take and that not being able to travel, not being able to participate in social spaces, that seems to me a very coercive measure to take. Well, yeah, I mean, it's disingenuous to say to somebody, well, you know, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, because if you don't do it, you'll be, as I said, deprived of all kinds of opportunities and facilities that you don't want to be deprived of, and that you accept as normal. So it's a heavy-handed approach. But I would say to you, Tara, what's the alternative? Is the alternative to just let people do whatever they want and accept what might be very adverse public health consequences? Although this does bring me back to what, in a sense, is my central point in all of this, which is you need to explain to people, you need to lay out the facts to them, you shouldn't tell them, and there was some of this happened. You shouldn't say, you must have a vaccine, just go and get it, don't ask too many questions. You have to explain why they should have a vaccine, what the advantages are of a vaccine, 
and what the disadvantages are of not having a vaccine and then let them decide for themselves. Now, that may be a very high bar to attain because it implies a massive, coordinated, rational public education process. Telling people why they should do this in some detail rather than forcing them, in effect, forcing them to do it. But the direction that most countries, including our country, went was essentially forcing people to do it. And then you get back to my point about the deferential Canadian. I mean, if some head of a science table, I don't know what a science table is exactly, but whatever it is, the head of a science table says, you should do this, or you must do this. Well, he's head of a science table, right? So he must be right. I mean, he's bucked to somebody, so you must be right. So I'll just do it. That's the way many Canadians think. Now, however, you're not going to say to me, not every Canadian thinks that. Look at the Freedom Convoy. They didn't think that, right? (laughs) Where does that fit into the equation? Exactly. And I definitely wanted to speak about that as well. You write in the book about the level of power that the executive branch of government has in Canada. We saw Justin Trudeau exercise that power when he evoked the Emergencies Act to quash those protests and also then making it a confidence vote in Parliament as well. Canadian Civil Liberties Association has launched legal action. Roseanne Archibald, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, has warned the House of Commons Finance Committee that it sets a bad precedent. She worries that those same powers could be used to freeze the bank accounts of anyone supporting any blockade. So far, Ottawa is citing cabinet confidentiality. We don't know the full justification. This inquiry that's happening may shed more light. But given that it's run by someone who used to work for the Liberals, we may be a bit skeptical. What do you make of all of what I've just said? I mean, I think the invocation of the Emergency Powers Act was a very serious mistake. I mean, I know nothing other than what I read in the newspapers or you know, on Twitter or all the usual places. So I have no special knowledge of this. But from what I know and what I see, I judge it to have been a very serious mistake, totally out of all proportion to the threat that was posed. You can, in a country, in a democratic country like ours, cite cabinet confidentiality to obscure the reasons why you did it. I think that's the last refuge of the scoundrel, not patriotism, but confidentiality. So I think it was a very serious mistake, far too broad in its implications and its application. I mean, what essentially you were confronted with, it seems to me, in Ottawa. Now, Windsor, the border things were somewhat different, but in Ottawa, it was a failure of the police, failure of the local police to deal appropriately and expeditiously and reasonably with what happened. And the emphasis should have been on that and how to fix that. And I guess eventually it was fixed in that way, but the invocation of the Emergency Powers Act was completely unjustified. You know, it was a pale imitation by the Prime Minister of what his father did in the FLQ crisis. They're a very pale imitation too, I might say. So I'm opposed to it. I agree with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I agree with all the criticisms that have been made of this. I think this inquiry, which of course is required under the Emergency Powers Act, if it's invoked, is just silly. It's not going to tell us anything. And I think we perhaps need to revisit that legislation and either seriously amend it or scrap it altogether. It has no place in a country like us. You also write in the book about secrecy, which I thought was so interesting. And I wanted to talk a little bit for a moment about internet regulation, because Michael Geist recently filed a freedom of information request with the government, gained access to Canadian Heritage's online harm consultation process in relation to internet regulation. So Twitter, for instance, argued that the proactive monitoring of content envisioned by the government sacrifices freedom of expression to the creation of a government-run system of surveillance of anyone who uses Twitter. 
the requirement to share information at the request of the Crown is also deeply troubling, it said. And it likened the government's website blocking plans to policies from countries like China, North Korea, and Iran. Andrew Coyne, writing in the Global Mail, has said this direct state regulation of content promises to be worse than the disease. Philip, how concerned should we be here? We should be extremely concerned. I mean, I agree with what Michael Geist wrote, and I agree with what Andrew Coyne wrote, and I read those things because you sent them to me. (laughs) So, So I read them, and I agree entirely with both of them. I mean, the idea that government should have any part at all in regulating, let's say, social media content is appalling to me, absolutely appalling. And I don't think it's far-fetched to start talking in the same breath about North Korea or China or now Russia. It's not far-fetched at all. Once the government starts in any way at all regulating what people can see, scrutinizing material that's posted to see whether it should be posted, you are in serious trouble. As I said earlier in our conversation, I'm a freedom of speech absolutist. I mean, I think that the restrictions on freedom of speech need to be very minimal. For example, one obvious example is it doesn't encompass incitement to violence. That clearly has to to be and is in our country illegal. But save for that and one or two other similar kinds of examples, there should be pretty much unrestrained freedom of speech. And if you somebody posts something that's absurd or risible, or prejudiced, or whatever, then we should be astute enough and well-educated enough, back to my old good argument, bad argument theory, to be able to spot it. The average citizen should be able to spot it and say, that's ridiculous, I don't believe it, or that's harmful, I reject it. That's the appropriate way of dealing with these things, not to have the government step in and according to whatever the political ideology of the day is, decide, no, that's not appropriate for people in this country to see or to read. Horrible idea. So I totally agree with Andrew Coyne, Michael Geist. And I don't think it's going to happen because I think in this country, notwithstanding the fact that we're all too deferential and passive when it comes to authority, I don't think the Canadians will buy this. I don't think they will. I hope not. <laughs> one, th- the one thing they might try and close you down. <laughs> they might decide that they, you know, the ideas you're propagating on lean out not suitable for consumption by the Canadian public. Or Indeed. Public. <laughs> against vaccine mandates, no, we have to shut this woman up. Mm. <laughs> so you, you dedicate a whole section of the book, Returning to Income Inequality Now, about how income inequality jeopardizes freedom, which I thought was so interesting and doesn't get talked about enough. Billionaire wealth in this country increased 68% during the pandemic. How does economic inequality limit freedom? Oh, I think in many ways, some fairly obvious, some fairly subtle. I mean, one of the things that's happening, I think, generally speaking, we all see this, is that the aspirations of the middle class, and most Canadians almost by definition are middle class, the aspirations of the middle class that for a long time and, and until fairly recently were regarded as acceptable, desirable, appropriate, you know, the old, I think I say in the book, something like, you know, the, the cottage with the picket fence so that your children and your dog can play happening in the back, that sort of thing. The prospect of a reasonable kind of job and a career with some degree of security and also provision for your old age when you eventually retire. All these normal, acceptable, understandable, reasonable aspirations that people had have basically been dashed now. I wouldn't want to be a young person 
graduating from university, having had my ideological kit bag filled up at university and going out into the workplace and trying to make a normal kind of life for myself today. Extremely difficult. That's not only attributable to income inequality, but it's partly attributable. It's a malfunctioning of the capitalist system, which is concentrating too much wealth in one place to the detriment of the other. There's only so much to go around. So there's that. I also find it personally almost obscene the wealth that some people are allowed to accumulate. And allowed to accumulate not because they've discovered a cure for cancer or anything you know hugely dramatic like that, but just because they've managed, either they've been extremely lucky or they've managed to pull the economic levers in some particularly effective and subtle way, often to the detriment of the general well-being. So I think these issues have to be addressed. And it's also caught up, for example, with tax policy. I mean, I happen to be somebody, this may surprise you, who's all in favor of good tax policy. I think taxes are a good thing. Taxes are the way we finance the common endeavor. Taxes are the way we pay for the health system and so on. Taxes are not something to be avoided. They are something to be embraced and paid. That's a paid plug for the Canada Revenue Agency right there. Now, that doesn't mean that some taxes aren't a bad idea. And I give you lots of examples of that. But taxes that are a good idea should be embraced. You know, Thomas Piketty, the now famous French economist, wrote that book in which he explained how most wealth comes from the capital that already exists, not from people working or inventing or creating or building. It comes from people, you know, clipping coupons off bonds and collecting dividends from stocks. That's not the way to go. So the thing about income inequality is and I don't understand this particularly, everybody like talks about other kinds of inequality and gets very hot under the collar about it and injects theories about it in university courses and in you know, op-eds and so on. But income inequality doesn't seem to attract that level of attention, but it's so fundamental to me. I agree with you completely. And I do find it astonishing how little coverage and little discussion and debate it gets considering the huge impact that it has. I have two last questions for you. You had an academic reader read earlier drafts of the book, and they concluded that you are a dominant culture white male speaking to to other dominant culture white males. Yes, that's what they concluded. In the introduction, you reject this premise, this idea that some of us have more legitimacy to participate in the public conversation than others. That was the first time I'd seen that articulated publicly. Why is it important to say it? Well, I mean, I reject the idea that we are all entirely trapped by whatever particular circumstances we find ourselves in. I mean, I can't change the fact that I'm a white man. I can't change the fact that I had the benefit of a good university education. I'm very grateful that I did. You know, I can't change the fact that I grew up in a peaceable, prosperous Western society. I can't change these things. But the idea that somehow this traps me when it comes to what I can say, what I can think, what I can write, somehow that everything I say or think or write has to be seen through that prism and discounted accordingly, I just reject that. I think there's no reason to accept that that I can see. The idea, for example, that I can't say anything meaningful about, let's say, the plight of Canadian Indigenous people because I'm not one of those, I completely reject that. I mean, that would be such an complete fetter on all kinds of discussion and discourse. It would Everything would just grind to a halt if that were to be accepted. So I just reject it. Now, that's not to say, of course, that's not entirely 
to discount the fact that we all, to some extent, are creatures of our, who we are. That means, to some extent, influence what we say and what we write and what we think. Of course, I, you know, I recognize that. But other than that, I don't. I mean, it's, it's all part of this, what I regard as grotesque and extremely dangerous identity politics movement, which wants to confine everybody to an increasingly smaller identity silo and reject their legitimacy when it comes to commenting on anything that's not within their silo. I mean, this is contrary to all human progress and thought over, the, over millennia. And I hope it dies. It's a fairly recent thing, and I hope it dies a quick death. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, at the end of the book, you offer a citizen's manifesto, a list of actions for Canadians, things like replace deference to establishment institutions and individuals with informed skepticism. When you think about that list, what do you see as the most pressing item and most pressing action for us all to think about now? Well, I don't think this is on the list as such, but I think the most important thing is for each individual citizen, first of all, to take responsibility or to or, or the word that seems to be in vogue now is agency, to accept that they have just as a person in this country, not just in this country, but we're talking about this country, as a person in this country, they have a responsibility to pay attention, to think, to try and discern the good arguments and weed out the bad ones, to criticize when appropriate, to speak out if necessary, but in a careful, informed, and skeptical way. We haven't talked about the famous Freedom Convoy. My problem with the Freedom Convoy is, as far as I can tell, I may be wrong on this, but I don't think so. That consisted largely of shouting meaningless slogans, and the people shouting these meaningless slogans were doing it for who knows what reason, but it didn't have much to do with political philosophy, I don't think. You may disagree with me on this. I don't know. I think perhaps you do. I think I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's another discussion. But I think each and every citizen, everybody walking down the street out there has this responsibility to pay attention to what's going on and not to be afraid to speak out intelligently and skeptically if necessary. You're here. And just on the note of the convoy, I thought Rupa Subramanya's reporting was incredibly thorough on this point and that there was a lot of concern about the actual vaccine mandates. And there was a lot of concern about economic inequality within the ranks of that protest. So I would just add that as a last note. Okay. Last word to you is your show. <laughs> Let's end on this. Where do we go from here? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? What do you think happens next in this country? Well, that's a big question, Tara. I wish I could be optimistic, but I don't feel particularly optimistic. I feel that there's a lot of negative forces at work. And to some extent, of course, they feed off each other. I'm alarmed in particular, speaking just of this country of Canada, I know you have listeners outside this country, but speaking about this country, I'm alarmed in particular about what I see as the increasing disappearance of a true sense of a Canadian identity that crosses all provinces, territories of the country. I think that's in various ways that we don't have time to talk about. I think that's taken a big beating recently. I think we're all tending to become more and more narrowly defined, which is not a good thing. In the book I've just finished now, my new book, which will come out next year sometime, I talk about identity politics. The book is called Anti-Semitism and Identity Politics. I talk about identity politics, which, as I said earlier, I'm very opposed to. And I contrast this with 
the words of great statesmen and thinkers fairly recently who had a different view. You know, I mean, there's the famous speech of Martin Luther King, for example, the, you know, I have a dream speech, often misused, I think, quotes from it often misused. But there's the most famous quote, I'm paraphrasing now, you may remember, is he says he dreams of a time when his children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That was a whole different concept. And that was 1963, I think, not that long ago. A whole different concept from the concepts that now prevail. So we're all getting more and more narrowly defined, squeezed into our little corners, told, in effect, to disrespect those who are not in our little enclave. This is very bad, and this has to be stopped if possible, but I don't see how that's going to happen. So I wish I could be optimistic and cheerful, but hey, I'm a Russian Jew. What do you expect, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always such a great pleasure to speak with you. This book is really thought-provoking. It really made me think a lot. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for your outspokenness and your humor. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>